Hello and welcome to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. I'm Martha Sutsui Billens, and today's episode is part two of our Q&A with Vera Ferreira and Hugo Cardoso. Hugo Cardoso is from the University of Lisbon, and he works with speakers of Creoles in South Asia, particularly the communities of DU and Kerala in India, and the Portuguese burger community in eastern Sri Lanka. If you want to learn more about Hugo's work, you can check out episode four of Field Notes. Vera Ferreira is from the Interdisciplinary Center for Social and Language Documentation, and she has done fieldwork with the communities of Mindrico, Fala, and Bavaria in Europe. If you want to learn more about Vera's fieldwork, you can check out episode two of Field Notes. Some of the things Vera, Hugo, and I discussed during this episode include how to deal with difficult recording situations and also how to reduce your environmental impact whilst in the field. How do you cope with the often tragic and or uncomfortable history surrounding the target language or culture? Yes. Well, very often, it doesn't have to be the case, but very often there will be some difficult stories or difficult circumstances that your, that your consultants will talk about. If I know that a topic is going to be controversial or, or difficult, emotionally difficult, I don't raise it in, in my interviews. But if uh, the consultants do raise it themselves, then I will engage in, in a natural way as, as much as possible, because it's always possible later on to decide whether or not this is something that you want to publicize if you're, if you're uh, uploading it to an archive. You can always edit it out, right? So I don't raise it, but I go with it. Mm-hmm. And... Um, this happens often, I think, and, and for different reasons in different communities, but my uh, latest experience in Sri Lanka has been interesting in this respect because the community I work with, I work with lives in the eastern part of Sri Lanka. So they've been affected by two recent tragedies. One is the 2004 tsunami. A good number of people from that community were affected because they lived right mm-hmm. by the coast. And the other one is the civil war, which only ended in 2009. So these were the two topics I was aware of <laughs> when I started my, my research there. And they keep coming up. But I realized that the implications are different for both of these tragedies. In fact, over time, speaking to them, I realized that these are not the same. So in the case of the tsunami, uh, even though it was completely, obviously very tragic, the community seems to have made peace with this. So if someone uh, of their own accord and of their own free will uh, talked about it in a matter-of-fact way about their own loved ones, I decided to keep it in the collection. But when it comes to the civil war, that's not the case because the reconciliation process is not over yet. So it would have been risky. And also I work with video, which means that it's, it's impossible to anonymize the materials. So I realized that even if, if I don't fully understand the implications of what they're saying that this could be risky, politically risky. So I decided to err on the side of caution and edit out any references to them. So the, the, the situations that I had were more personal stories that were like very sensitive. Uh, but 
the the consultants have brought the line at these topics themselves brought them up so mm-hmm. themselves so i haven't addressed the issues directly but as you said so i go along with them mm-hmm. and but i'm not going to i haven't archived or published these materials because they are really sensitive and yeah. uh, very personal yeah. yeah yeah but in the moment you can't say like oh wait can no you stop, yeah, stop it yeah no 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 no, no. <laughs> no i just have to go with the flow what is your must-take research equipment? Hugo, we have a great list of all of your stuff in episode four. I linked all of your equipment. But Vera, do you have any must-take research equipment? Well, a good camera. Is, yeah. is that your uh, the equipment that you're talking about? Yeah. Good camera, good mics, several mics for different situations, not only one omnidirectional mic, but yeah. several for several types. Uh, if you have the opportunity, take an additional camera because you never know. Enough batteries, because not always there is a possibility to buy batteries or to load your equipment. And don't forget to turn on your mics when you're recording. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you like the Zoom Q8? Yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah. But I mean, if you have the possibility to have the Zoom Q8 and another camera, I would advise you to have both, not only the Zoom Q8. Because the, the Zoom Q8 is good. Is really good. You can have very good images, but if you have the possibility or the budget to buy another camera that allows you to have other type of uh, another quality of um, pictures, movies, and so on, I would advise you to have the other one too. Do you have yeah. some suggestion for the? Um, there are some Sony. I can I can tell you later. I can send you the links if you want. Yeah. And um, there are some um, very good cameras out there that you don't need to pay tons of money for a very good camera. But the Zoom Q8 for someone who is starting now. It's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> How have you dealt with a difficult recording situation, whether environmental, like excessive wind or social? <laughs> I have a story about this. <laughs> okay. Um, so the worst, the absolutely most devastating recording I ever did was we were already outside. So that situation is not great, but that was where the de- elders were meeting. So I met them there and uh, well, it wasn't completely outside. It was like in a, a shack sort of with three walls, but one wall is open to the wind. And also we are by the ocean. And I was trying to record this one, a mommy grandma. She wanted me to peel these oranges. So I'm trying to record, peel the oranges, ask her the questions, make the notes. And next to her is her friend who was listening in. And then the friend, the friend got bored. And so she decided that she would fire up the karaoke machine. Oh no. And she started... (laughs) blasting karaoke <laughs> about five feet away from us and at that point i just forget it i just decided like nothing good was going to come out and luckily it was an, uh, someone that i had regular access to yeah. so you could redo it i just totally wrote it off i was like well i'm like my hands were sticky and full of oranges and i was just like forget it well, there's always going to be things like that. Yeah. <laughs> and I can tell you a story that happened recently in Sri Lanka, which was a little bizarre if someone was watching from outside. Because we were interviewing, uh, I wasn't alone, I was there with my with the rest of the team, and we were interviewing a big group of performers uh, singing songs outside in a beautiful courtyard, and it was the perfect setting and all that. But the session took longer than, than we expected. This was the late afternoon, and then suddenly the sun started to go down. And in the tropics, the sun sets very quickly. So at some point within the, the space of a song, we realized the, the image is not going to be good. I mean, we can't see anything. So our solution at the time was to 
each one of us are uh, behind the camera use our mobile phones. <laughs> <laughs> Right, the, the little lanterns yeah, yeah, on the yeah. mobile phones and try to illuminate it from, <laughs> from behind the camera, which can only go as far, right? So at some point we did have to stop them, which is what we didn't want mm. to do. And uh, we moved inside the house. But, you know, you try your best. Yeah. <laughs> did it help? For a few minutes. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I have some cases where yeah children were playing around or came in the house and when I was recording you cannot stop them so yeah. there is no way you can you just uh, let things go and then you see um, if you can transcribe because sometimes it's really impossible to transcribe if there's a lot of background noise but yeah, I'm not going to stop a recording just because uh, some background noise is, uh, is uh, annoying me at this time yeah. but if you have the possibility of using different mics this will allow you <laughs> to to cover or at least protect your recordings from a lot of background noises that you have. Or, for instance, I had one recording. I was in a, a cafe, and I put the camera and I put the microphone right in front of a fridge that I couldn't listen to. But the mic got cut all the sound that the fridge was producing, mm -hmm. and I couldn't transcribe. I couldn't use a recording at all. But when I was m monitoring it, it was perfect. It was good. But I couldn't listen to the 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 fridge so in the end yeah. yeah so you need to select the best places where you put your camera and don't put a camera in front of a fridge yeah. so it doesn't work or air conditioner or kitchens kitchens yeah. in general are yes. just so terrible yeah but of course i think all of us have these experiences that some recordings uh have a lot of background noises and you cannot change it so a friend of mine is doing field work in nigeria and uh you have chickens around and you have other animals that they interfere but you cannot say put your chicken inside the house <laughs> there's yeah. no way so you need to you know what you where you are and uh you know that this can will interfere with your recordings and perhaps sometimes you can actually use these interferences as topics of conversation exactly too. that that's happened a couple of times i mean once i remember i was interviewing someone about i don't know easter or something religious and then there was this background noise that came on And I didn't know what it was, so I asked him. And it was quite interesting because then he explained, you know, next door there is this, my neighbor has a machine for grinding spices. And then we started talking about that. Yeah. So, so if you can, stimuli. use it. <laughs> good stimuli then. Yeah. 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 In what ways do you reduce your environmental impact in the field or as a researcher in general? Well, I haven't uh, always practiced everything that I'm going to say, but it's important to think about this and to uh, put it into practice as best we can. Some some uh, issues have been obvious to me, some have not. I think one is that if you have to fly to your um, to your field site, and if it's uh, appropriate and acceptable, then you should try to do it in one go to save on... on uh, like stay as long as possible. Stay as long as possible. It, it's not always possible to do that, either because you have uh, work or family constraints or because, you know, if you're, when you're um, doing field work for language description, if you're, uh, If your idea is to produce a grammar, it may be a good idea to break it up so that you have time in between your visits to work on the data and come up with the, the next question. So, of course, but if you can, if you can do it in one go, that's, of course, going to be beneficial. And then in the field, uh, I have to say, I work in very, in a relatively urban settings, which is probably very different from what a lot of our listeners will find themselves in, in terms of challenges, but also in terms of possibilities. 
But in my case, some issues that I think came up were to do with drinking water or rather the plastic that you will almost inevitably have to produce, the plastic waste you'll have to produce if the tap water isn't drinkable and you need to rely on, on um, filtered bottled water, water, bottled water. And in that case, uh, what you can do is if you can uh, have a filter in the house where you're staying, that's great. So then you can refill your, your bottles and produce your own clean water. Some people use taps as well. But if you do have to rely on buying water, then at least I think you should go for large cans rather than, than individual bottles. Try and find out whether there is a way to recycle and where you can deposit your plastic. And uh, I've come to realize that in many places, certain restaurants, for example, will will allow you to refill your bottles with filtered water there. So mm-hmm. that's also worth asking around. Mm-hmm. There's a few more things I can say, but I'm not sure if you, if you want to. No, add I think to my this. concerns were almost the same as you because, uh, as yours, because I was I'm was also working in urban environments, and uh, plastic is one of the major issues that we have at the moment, or at least that I was dealing with. And I tried to I, I use filter water all, all the time, and my own filter, and I was filtering the water, even though you can drink tap water. But yeah. I, uh, for some places, I didn't know very well, so I had my filter water instead of buying bottles and bottles of water. And I tried to avoid the car because I was driving with the mm-hmm. car and I tried to avoid it as much as I could. So I walked a lot and I used the bike. I had my bike. I could take the bike with me and I used the bike to go around, mm-hmm. which which was really good because people uh, got to know me because I was al- always with the bike mm-hmm. and um, and they got in touch with me and they wanted to be recorded as well. So this right. has this other side effect of things and I think it is good. it was good for the environment and for me as um, because... When you're in the field, so you don't move that much, or at least don't move the way you should move. Uh, and um, having the bike, but it's not always possible to have a bike. But you can order one or buy one. Or yeah. I mean, there's there's ways of protecting the environment when you are in the field as well. In many ways, the the care that you have to take with the environmental issues in the field isn't very different from what you should do exactly where you live, right? Yeah. But um, there are specific circumstances. Still on the topic of water, but how much water you use for washing. The first site where I did field work, I, w- I was staying in a guest house and there was running water. But then one day, by chance, I, I noticed that actually the water wasn't, um, didn't come from, from a public network. Uh, it came from a, a rooftop deposit and the deposit had to be refilled by a truck. So I realized, okay, yeah, maybe I should be careful yeah. with how much water mm-hmm. I, I use and then you uh, get used to washing from a bucket, which is perfectly fine. And the other thing, especially in places, uh, hot and humid places like the ones I work with, is that if you happen to have air conditioning available, you may feel tempted to use it a lot, but air conditioning uh, really does use a lot of energy. So you should be careful about that. Oh, and still, uh, I think the equipment is also something to consider because, especially batteries, if you can select um, oh, a rechargeable battery, right? Yeah. So if if you have some sort of equipment that has an inbuilt battery, that's that's ideal. If not, then you should, if possible, use rechargeable Recharge. batteries and yeah. bring your own uh, charger. Otherwise, you'll, you'll end up producing a lot of waste. Yeah, I did that the second time because I didn't realize in Amami there's only one day a year where you can get rid of your batteries, where you can recycle them. Oh, and so. That one day in the year was not while I was there, so I had to give them to someone to save for six more mm. months until that day came. Is there anything you would advise someone to absolutely not do 
in regards to research or field methods? This question is so broad, but... There's lots of things, but I think I'll select one. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) One piece of advice. I'd probably say um, that you shouldn't uh, assume that you can do proper documentation in a short period of time, like a a reporter would if if they're doing a piece on a particular community. So National Geographic. Yes, yes. That doesn't work. And for many reasons. I mean, for starters, your informants will probably feel used if you're there for a couple of days and then disappear. Yeah. But also the quality of your materials is is uh, probably not going to be great because at least at the very least it's going to be partial, but it's probably also going to be very self-conscious. So you need to spend time there and create the necessary conditions of trust to really access the kind of materials or the best ma- the best materials possible. So that's that would be my um, my advice. Don't think that you can just go even if you're only looking for a very small amount of materials. Don't think that you can just go there for a couple of days and get it. Yeah, and also after you have built this trust and you think, okay, now you are going to do the best recordings ever. The first recordings are normally not the best ones, and don't feel frustrated if it turns out that the recordings that you have done are not usable. Uh, it comes out later. So if you practice and the people get used to you and the way you talk and the way you conduct the interviews, then you get much better recordings in the end. So it's normal to have the worst recordings at the beginning. Or And of course, if you're going to the field now and they know you, you're going to collect good recordings. But it's not that the first three are not going to, go, to do good recordings at all. Yeah. So... Or they might feel that's that's true. Or they might feel that those that, that material is fantastic. Yeah. So I think it works if you're doing a pilot pilot visit. It's fine if you go there for a couple of days because the intention is always to keep. Yeah. yeah. And it's a lifelong project. It's not yeah. it's not one way. So you go there, you collect the data, and then you go home and you have the materials. No. How do you manage self care while in the field? Self care, like mental health. Oh, take some breaks. I would say take some breaks. I know that we have this pressure of we need to collect the materials and need to engage with the community, but we also need our own time for ourselves. And it's good to have to plan when you're planning the field work to plan some days off that you, for instance, if you say one month, just plan one or two days off that you are, you go somewhere else, you, you be with other people. And if it's a very small community, then everybody knows you and you really need some time, some fresh air and just go somewhere else and spend some days. Or if you can spend a week, then spend a week, do some other things and then come back again. Another thing that I've done is um, I've done some sports. So it was the way of, yeah, because it was difficult to get out of Minde. It's not impossible. Of course, you can get out. You have the car there, but I didn't want to use the car very often, the cart very often. And I, I rent, I had the bike and I could go for some rides and uh, that was good. Yeah. It helps if it's easier for you to communicate with people at home, mm-hmm. which it is in my case, because as I said, these are usually urban areas yeah. where you have mobile phones and internet and, and things like that. But I can imagine if you don't, that could be a problem. And I've had the experience of work, of doing field work on my own and with a team. And it's so much nicer with a team in oh, that yeah. respect. Oh, yeah. Really? So if you can, you know, if, if there are some colleagues who, who want to come along with you or can come along with you, that's great. It yeah. helps. What are some surprisingly effective elicitation techniques and or your old reliable methods and why? These can be topic specific. One that I've become very 
attached to and a big fan of is uh, walking tours, which I've been able to do in my last uh, project because I had a wireless lapel microphone, so it makes it easy mm. to, to walk around. And those have been fantastic. So we've used them for demonstrations, cooking demonstrations, demonstrations of crafts such as carpentry or blacksmithing. We have a video of someone making a, a, a knife and explaining how it's done. Tours of buildings. We have a tour of a cathedral given by the priest. Tours of workshops, the workplaces, which are great because if you do something like this, well, first of all, the, the topics of conversation just come up naturally. But also you will encounter objects and topics of conversation that you would never think of if you were having a static interview. So, for example, when we, when we did this tour, walking tour of a, a carpentry workshop guided by a carpenter, I heard all sorts of, uh, the names of all sorts of um, tools and techniques, which as a non-specialist I would never have been able to ask for. So that, this is great. I highly recommend it. Yeah, I've done house tours, so, so they could explain the different parts of the house and what they do. I, I just want, I wanted to elicit the names of the different rooms, but then they started telling me what they do for Christmas, for instance, in this particular room, what they cook uh, when we were in the kitchen, for instance. I have an interview where she was explaining the different parts of the kitchen and then she started telling me what she has prepared for lunch and what she's going to prepare for dinner. So this... And in a very natural way. Mm -hmm. So I have done, I'm also a fan of, <laughs> of these walking tours. Yeah. That's such a great idea. With the wireless lapel mics, have you ever had the connection break? No. Okay. Wireless lapel mics are, I think, quite expensive. Yeah. But if you can invest in a good one, then you won't have problems like that. Okay. The one I have um, works very well. And there has been on one of the tours, which was a tour of a particular area of a town, And uh, one of the residents was giving this, this tour, giving us this tour. I, I wasn't the one asking the questions, so I could be filming from a distance sometimes, and, and that, that worked very well. And even then, I was perhaps, I don't know, 100 meters away sometimes, and um, it wouldn't break. So if you have a good yeah. microphone, then this should work. I'll link this the one work. again that you have. It's one of my favorite pieces of equipment. <laughs> yeah, they are really good. Mm. And you can do a lot of very good recordings with them. Yeah. And if our listeners want to learn more about your work, where can they find you online? I think the easiest, in my case, would be to go to the Center for Linguistics of the University of Lisbon, because all the information about my different projects is there with links to, for example, the, the collections on ELAR and all that. Perfect. And Sarah? So in my case, uh, people can go to the Interdisciplinary Center for Social and Language Documentation, which is www.cidles.eu. And um, yeah, there are descriptions of the projects. And if they want to learn more about my work, additionally, they want they can visit ELAR, the Ninja Language Archive. Great. Okay. Thank you, Vera. Thank you, Hugo. Thank you. Thanks for having us. You've been listening to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. This podcast is hosted and produced by Martha Satsui Billens with production help from Laura Satsui. Our music is by Lobo Loco, and our logo is by Evil Designs. If you have a question or fieldwork experience to share, you can email us at fieldnotespod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ling Field Notes. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an Apple Podcast review. Thanks for listening.